you know, it doesn't require classified. You don't have to have a classified document. It has to be national defense information, whatever that is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so it's a, like incredibly loose, uh, irresponsible statute to pass. Uh, and that's one of the problems the Trump prosecution is going to have to have. Uh, but there is a Trump segue here. And, you know, Peggy Noonan wrote a very good column today, basically. I, I'm allergic to all the hype involved in terms of, oh, you know, Trump pressured the president of Ukraine to do his own political bidding. Well, you know, we now know that there was maybe something sleazy going on with Biden. He wanted to find and, out about uh, it. I mean, let's not make too big a deal of it. And this, you know, uh, Stephen J. James, how's it going, bro? Yo, Luke Ford, long time listener, first time caller. How are you doing? <laughs> yeah, pretty good, mate. Pretty good. So uh, when did you start live streaming? Okay, so this is what people want to hear, I guess, the backstory. Um, so I think it was about a year and a half ago. I can't remember, to be honest, um, but somewhere around then, um, and I didn't start live streaming at first. I started making videos. And I did it walking my dog, and I pieced them together and come back and, p- and post them online. And uh, some people started to watch them, I guess. Got some of your your audience somehow. Uh, that's about it, really. And what kind of effect has it had on your life becoming a live streamer? Uh, not much at all, really. Um, it hasn't really panned out as I expected. Um, kind of at the start, I I had this idea that I could build a channel, maybe, but then I decided. Um, after seeing how the internet had been bad for various people um, and how, and like some people have got doxxed, some people's lives have been ruined, as you, as you point out all the time. Uh, I, didn't wa- I didn't want to go on camera and stuff. And so rather than talking about political stuff, which isn't my forte anyway, this has kind of just become like my personal diary on the internet, really. Um, and so kind of at this stage, I don't even know why I'm still doing it, really. Isn't that funny? Do you, do you ever find it intoxicating? Because I know that I often find it absolutely intoxicating when I get the sense sure. that, you know, some people are like really listening to me and that I have an effect on people. It's like, whoa, I mean, for me, that's a high. Sure, there is a high. There's a high when you do a good stream. but There's also a low when you do a bad one, isn't there? It's all, yeah. always terrible. If you, if you feel like you've really messed up, <laughs> that can be bad. And that's why one of my rules, which I, I've been putting out recently, is that as soon as you've done something bad, partic- particularly on the internet, is you've just got to come back with another banger, really. Get straight back onto it. Yeah, it's like falling off a horse. You know, you don't go home and take a shower. You've you got to get back on the horse. Yeah. I've just seen uh, that's a really bad crop of me on 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 the stream, isn't it? So how about I I turn my camera off and we go no, back to? I mean, I don't care. You can do what you like, but I mean, the, the crowd is just going wild, man. They're, they're looking at the definition in your bicep. <laughs> I'm sure they are. I'm sure they are. I mean, you got um, really strong wrists too. Okay. Uh, well, sorry to dis- disappoint the audience. Um, but I think we'll go, let's go to the icons and that'll make me uh, more comfortable here, I think. Yeah, no worries. We want you to feel comfortable. Nothing good in life happens until, you know, other, other people that you're engaging with, you know, feel, feel comfortable. So you've hosted, you know, people on your stream, uh, anyone as much as Claire Core, is she your number one guest? 
Yeah, I started with Claircore. Um, so I guess Claircore took my internet virginity there, and she's kind of been. Um, uh, I don't know how to describe it. How um, I've kind of got used to talking to Claire. She's she's actually a fun girl who knows how to have a good time if you keep her off her own uh, topics. So she can be fun as long as you don't really let her ramble on about secular Quranism. So would she be like your Mrs. Robinson? Yes, that's what I was kind of alluding to there, I guess. <laughs> and yeah. how, how would you compare the experience of uh, streaming alone versus streaming with someone else? For me, it's like the difference between masturbation and having sex with somebody. Yeah, I think I'm the opposite, right? Because I still find uh, this kind of thing really awkward, um, talking to other people on the internet. I've I've kind of got into this groove. I'm just switching on my phone camera. And when I'm doing that, I'm really in the zone and I can be super comfortable. But like doing this now is a difficult thing for me. Hmm. Are you more introverted or extroverted by nature? Um, I think I'm an eight. It's weird, is this? That that's a weird question. I think I'm a, um. I think I'm introverted. Who's who? Who's forced to get on a stage at times? Because um, like, I, okay, in my in my personal life, I uh, do I, I do sporting competition, and when I'm doing that. I'm literally on a stage in a ring uh, in front of like hundreds of people. Um, but I'm not naturally that guy at all. So it's a weird one. Well, I think most performers are actually the same way. Like most actors, stand-up comics, I don't think they're naturally extroverted. They put on a persona when they go on stage and then they retreat into their shell off stage. Yeah, I've heard somebody say that confidence is just um, like the faking of confidence. Is that what you mean? Well, it's it's the strapping on of a, of a persona that that is adaptive to the situation that you walk into. So people strap on a persona when they do a job interview, right? Mm -hmm. You're not going to tell your potential employer what you're really like as an employee. Sure. I think familiarity is how you get gain confidence, in my opinion. So essentially, I just haven't done much of this. I haven't talked to many people on the internet yet. Um, in real life, I can um, I can be nervous about meeting somebody uh, in a situation, but I can go there and I can do like the the feigned confidence thing, and then I am confident about it thereafter. Uh, but situations like uh, this, I just haven't done much. Uh, conversations like like this really i've talked on my own show i've opened up about it how um i'm i was nervous about talking to colin liddell uh, really really nervous and fun felt like i was fumbling it and uh, the other few interviews that i've done on my channel um so does that get better over time were you like that at the start yeah i mean colin liddell's also he's quite intimidating to talk to you should hear my first interview with him i like i really you know rubbed him wrong the first minute you know i made some <laughs> off-color jokes and and he, you know he kind of called me on it and you know i snapped right. into line and became much more respectful after that yeah 
he's also got i mean typical scottish uh, demeanor he's dry he's serious to a point but also you know there's something like uh under there that could really cut you cut you down if you uh um uh, speak out of turn so uh yeah intimidating uh at first uh, and i'm naturally deferential at first to everybody really um, so but it's all it's all so anyway uh, i've opened up about this i even did a stream before coming on here saying luke ford's asked me to stream um and uh, i feel awkward about it yeah so. yeah uh have you told people in your real life about your online life so there are a couple of people who know um and they uh yeah then they're, they're not political though so um they just don't care so i think they watched a this was say about six months or eight months ago and i'd be talking about topics that were really niche to do with the alt-right and things like that the dissident right and characters in it which have been some of my most popular videos so my most po popular content has been when i've been making fun of the various uh broken and weird characters in the dissident right i've had a go at them made fun made jokes um and so i think they tuned in at that time and then they've just basically tuned out because they've not said anything in a long time but certainly they know about it um and uh yeah so Even my uh, mom knows <laughs> and what does your mom think of richard spencer so she wouldn't be able to name him uh if she saw a picture of him i don't think and uh, how, they're just apolitical you, people yeah how, how does your mum feel about me and grooming you know me grooming you <laughs> so unfortunately she wouldn't know you either if she if she saw you so <laughs> so unless she's hiding something you know from me i mean she never brought it up never brings up she never brought up richard spencer like these are the topics that i've talked about probably more frequently than others um so that, i think if if she continues to watch I, i'd be very i'd be very surprised if she continued to watch my channel even though she does know it yeah yeah i, I remember i think uh dennis, dennis prager's mum said to him you know i could listen to you for free and i don't listen why would anyone you know pay you to give a speech <laughs> yeah yeah um you know uh, the people in our lives we've got to be thankful they love us for who we are um not the things that come out of our mouths yeah yeah so i found and i instinctively knew this before i even did it when i started writing on the pornography industry my my website gained you know enormous attention over, over ten thousand unique uh, visitors a day because i didn't really have much competition you know for a long time i was the only person you know, blogging, yeah. uh, you know, news under the porn industry on a daily basis. So too with the alt-right, if you have anything, if you bring anything to the table, you can garner comparatively a huge audience because you're not really competing with anyone else. Like, because no one in polite society, nobody with anything to lose is going to write on a regular basis about either the pornography industry or the alt-right. So marginalized losers like me can come along and have an enormous audience in both of these areas because there's very little competition. So that's how I understand why both of us can gain an enormous audience, for example, talking about the alt-right compared to you know pretty much any other topic that we 
focus on? What's your understanding of this? Yeah, well, you came, you came into it right at the key moment, didn't you? Um, or maybe just after, yeah. to be fair. Maybe yeah. just after. If you'd have been on it a couple of years in a, earlier, um, when I discovered this phenomenon was uh, growing, was uh, a little earlier than I than I thought at first. I thought it, I'd been introduced to it through your show, but it's not actually the case I, because my entry point into this was like um, typing on the internet, looking for Richard Spencer. Uh, so I was already aware about Richard Spencer. And then I found you were covering Richard Spencer at the uh, Michigan event. And you sat talking to Babylonian Hebrew back in the day. So you're not actually the guy who's groomed me into it. So you, I can let you off the hook for that. Um, I came looking for this type of thing. I was already looking and I found you. Um, but so that was like 2018. That was like after the war ski thing with Richard Spencer. So if you'd been there a couple of years earlier, actually uh, video blogging about the Trump phenomenon. Uh, well, actually, I did start in 2015. I, I did my first live stream in uh, 2015 with Vivian Veritas and her sister. Okay. Okay. And how did those go? I mean, did you I get think much they're traction? pretty good. Yeah. I mean, not, not at the time. We're talking for, for like two and a half years. I'd only get like 10 live viewers, which is what I get now. But um, then I went on Warski live and there were like 2,500 live people uh, watching. Yeah. And then that was then a my heyday. Audience, yeah, that was, that was January, a heyday of the old right. January 2018. So after that, I got so excited that I started doing shows every day. So from 2015 to January 2018, and he did shows once a week. And yeah, I were your shows built around were, the Torah the, portion. Were the ones right. before that, you said in 2015, were they like explicitly um, political or were they uh, like themed over the Torah stuff? Uh, they were both. So I, I like, figured that the, the Torah was like a safe way to talk about alt-right politics like you, okay, know, yeah. you embrace the language of the torah you know wrap yourself in the mantle of the torah you know wash my soul in the the wellsprings of torah and then i can you know tackle and discuss topics that are you know otherwise considered you know too polluted for polite society yeah it's a bit of a niche audience though isn't it branding <laughs> it as the torah yes <laughs> yeah i mean it was a lot of fun but for two and a half years i'd have uh, professor casey on and Dennis yeah. Dale and, and Vivian, but we'd only have like, you know, 10, 15 live viewers. I think we maxed out like 55 when I had Kevin McDonald on. Yeah. So look, I've said to everybody, um, I was watching at least from just before you went on Warski, uh, whenever Richard Spencer did that Michigan thing. Yeah, that was like March or April of 2018. Right. So anyway, yeah, around, I'm sure that's how I found your channel. Um, yeah, so somewhere around them. And I've said that at that time, in those proceed, uh, preceding or um, following months, you were doing some of the best interviews on the alt-right. You were interviewing everybody, including the man himself, Richard Spencer, multiple times, like for three hours at a time. Um, so it's amazing that your show didn't, grow uh, to something much more and it, i don't know what the reason is 
that you've you didn't end up like with over a thousand views do you think it was your own self like sabotaging or, or do you think something else um stopped you from developing that so i i'd say one i didn't put enough attention to the technical quality of the show so mm. it, it wasn't until i think 2019 i, I went and got voice lessons so prior to, to that i had a monotone voice uh, it wasn't until like 2020 that I went out and spent $500 on an audio consultation. So somewhere around 2020, 2021, I finally got my audio quality figured out. You know, I had to spend hundreds of dollars to consult with somebody. Uh, that that helped. Then I was hitting hitting my stride, but then the coughness critique came out, and I embraced that with such enthusiasm. Oh yeah, that was it. That was it. You turned the audience I, off. I turned off my audience and I turned off almost everybody that I co-hosted with. Including me at the time, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, cause you went full, full coughness, didn't you? I went, I went the full coughness. And so, uh, Casey yeah. didn't want to stream with me regularly anymore. Uh, soon Dennis Dale didn't want to stream with me regularly. Almost nobody on the alt right wanted to stream with me much anymore. And then in June of 2018, I remember that so much. Then I, in in May of 2018, I lost Brundlefly. Like uh, his, you know, his wife said, "You can't, yeah. you can't do this." So when <laughs> he, those were great shows when I did them with with Brundle. But once I lost Brundle, I lost Casey, yeah. I, I lost Dennis Dale, and I brought on board Kevin Michael Grace, who is a phenomenal yeah. streamer. But uh, a lot of other people then dropped off. The the yeah. the, the group chat component of the show died largely yeah. when i brought on kevin michael grace and you know i deferred to him because he's a man of such enormous charisma and learning he's just got such a, a force field about him and mm. so he would he would he wanted to do a structured show mm -hmm. didn't he about news yeah. and yeah and punditry and that yeah. worked for a long time there, but that there are itself became stale a, yeah there are advantages to a structured show but there are also advantages to an unstructured show so what happened was is i lost many most of the advantages of the unstructured show that i was doing and it's not that you know kevin michael grace is the bad guy or he's the reason there are all sorts of reasons that that eliminated the gang that i was streaming with and i am yeah. not someone who has a kevin michael grace style force field of, of personality or a dennis prager force field of personality who can compel an audience on my own charisma alone you know i i can't do that i need other people yeah no i agree entirely so you cultivated one audience and then you switched it up and then you start to cultivate that audience but the other one was alienated by that and so there's been these multifactual things what i want to say is that if you think back to the start though luke if you think back to the early initial days like the google hangout days you know nobody was complaining about the audio or the amateur content were they about the amateur nature of it everybody kind of just lo uh, just loved it and mucked in yeah. It's weird, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you've got compelling content, that that uh, tends to trump, you know, every other uh, possibility. And, you know, I just had so many different people coming on the show from, you know, we had this Arab guy, we had, you know, we had this trans, the, you know, the Iraqi trans, guy, whatever. Iraqi guy. We had, we had such, you know, enormously white. So we'd have like Jews talking to Nazis, you know, almost every, every night. And so that was, was what was compelling. Yeah. 
that was what was compelling to me. Yeah. Listening. I wanted to know about, obviously, I wanted to know about this Jewish question. Um, and just in my previous video, before I came on here, uh, Brundlefly counseled me not to talk about the Jewish question. Okay, so let's tread carefully. But uh, this was obviously like the, at the heart of the alt-right, wasn't it? Yeah. This was what yes. everybody was talking about and debating on Warski. And on your show was the place where the Jews were there debating it out with like the Wignats, the, 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 hard, the hardest core ones. Uh, they come on your show and they battle it out. And, and although you would attempt to, um, you would attempt to referee, I think, in a fair way. And uh, sure, something like the Wignats would be put, their nose would be put out of joint or whatever, that they couldn't, get away with maybe saying the harshest stuff i can't remember if they were allowed to back then maybe you allowed them i can't exactly remember but um everybody kind of appreciated the platform there where it would happen and some people have said to me look um the jewish question was discussed on other shows such as heel turn far more uh openly than on luke ford show but i said no luke ford show was a place where the Jews were talking about it with the Wignats, and it was being battled out. Um, and so, it, to me, it was a unique space, and I, I was interested in these ideas um, that were being thrown around at the heart of the alt-right. And I even remember, back in the day, kind of a little after Duvid had come on your show, and a discussion between, like, Melky and... Uh, Dennis Dale and Brundle, and there was like this discussion going on about a potential. <laughs> it sounds so so bizarre now looking back, but that there was like this potential in the air that the alt right could feel it. That there was this potential in the air that the Jewish question was being raised to such a high point, and they were winning arguments so much that they were bringing a potential like negotiation with the Jews about. Do you remember that? Yes. Yeah. I mean, heady days from from an alt right perspective. When, Feels so bizarre now, looking back. I mean, so many people really believed that the alt right had elected Donald Trump, and essentially yes. elected put you know a friend in the White House. Yeah, yeah. So, how influential do you think it was? Whether he was I, a friend or not, how influential do you think the uh, actual alt right? Uh, like Richard Spencer seems to think that he still had a huge influence on bringing Trump to the White House, doesn't he? Yeah, he believes essentially he elected Donald Trump in 2016. Yeah. I w would not say that. I, I don't think it was particularly influential. It was, for for a time, you know, an area filled with great jokes and some intellectual excitement. Hillary Clinton was worried enough to make that speech, though, wasn't she, which utterly yeah. backfired. Yeah, the uh, the alt she named the alt right and the and then basket of deplorables, didn't she? And that guy famously during that speech yelled uh, just as she'd said it, Pepe. Yes, yeah. So, I, I Colin Liddell defining makes, moment. Yeah, Colin Liddell makes this point that up until about 2015, the alt right was primarily a written word movement, so it was much higher IQ. Yeah. Prior to the alt right primarily becoming a podcasting medium, where you didn't need to read books to have the confidence to you know make 
podcasts and, and memes. So the average IQ of the you know alt right audience seems to decline from you know one fifteen say in twenty fifteen to like ninety five by twenty eighteen. So there was a substantial intellectual degradation in the alt right, and simultaneously prior to Charlottesville, no one associated with the alt right had killed anyone. Like you had white nationalists yeah. who killed anyone, but the alt right was primarily in in the at least the the popular understanding was like primarily a kind of a, a humor movement online and, and no one was getting hurt and no one was getting killed. Then you had people yeah. associated with the alt-right who started massacring people and that made it a lot more difficult for me to just treat it as, you know, a fun and intellectually exciting movement. It suddenly became a, a visceral threat to, among other institutions, synagogues. So even let, let's say the alt-right is right about certain things, but when people, let, let's say they're even right when they're, you know, about certain things, when they go out and commit acts of terror, I can't, you know, I can't discuss their, their assertions with absolute equanimity that, that I did in 2015 to 2018 once they start routinely slaughtering people. It just changes the whole environment sure. once you talk about things. Sure. No, I, and I fully appreciated that. I really did. Um, you know, I'll get some pushback on this from from some people who watch this. Um, I do actually, um, just for my association with coming from, as I, I, I phrase this all the time to people, I say, look, I come from the kosher-approved Luke Fordosphere of the alt-right. And therefore, um, I'm like, um, in a... I, I think the phrase I use, I'm kosher certified. Probably not, not the right. The right. <laughs> yeah, but it, it communicates something that I think uh, most people can understand. Yeah. And so I have a mixture on my channel of wignats who watch me, um, who are pretty hardcore, I think. And um, and then people from your scene who are watching at the same time. And the ones who are the wignats, um, they'll give me pushback and say, you know, like the the... Uh, the horrible things about it, but um, being coming from this space, whether it means that I've been essentially cucked onto the Jewish question or not, coming from this space did give me a sense of nuance that uh, I feel has served me well. Um, and I told Duvid this um, when he came on a Claire Core stream a little while ago. Um, I think we, if anybody's interested, but I think the stream was where Claire and I were eulogizing Daniel Sinkowitz, who we think has died recently. Oh. Um, so, so Duvid came, <laughs> yeah, no, he devastated, right? <laughs> but, uh, Duvid came on that show and, um, I said to Duvid that, uh, I think that this interaction has been, uh, something of, it has been useful, this conversation that that was had on your show and that Duvid does, whether people think he is, um, uh, whether he thinks it, them, he's making it worse, accelerationist or not. Um, I know he gets that critique from the Jewish side, but I think this conversation has helped somebody like me, for instance, and to understand that at the very heart of it, even if premises about it are true, that it can be understood 
from the aspect uh, of the fact that people, other groups do just act in their own interest, which is something that you make the point of all the time. And that you can understand this from a sense of groups acting in their own interest. And it's not necessarily the big bad wolf that it seems to be when it's presented in the framing of the alt-right and the conspiratorial side of it. Have I made any sense at all? Yeah, yeah, perfectly. That different groups have, have different different interests. And so the, the interests of Jews and the interests of Arabs, you know, clash, such as over the existence of the modern, modern Jewish state, the interests of Christians, the interests of Jews, the interests of Muslims, and the interests of homosexuals, for example, frequently clash. To be you know, pro-homosexuality is essentially to be anti-Judaism and anti-Christianity. And to be pro-Christianity and pro-Judaism is to be anti-gay. Sure. Uh, uh, and at the, the problem with the alt-right is like that they they can point at the problem or what, you know, I don't want to call it the problem. I don't mean it like that. The, um, I think the old Wignat 1.0 or white nationalism 1.0 framed it as the Jewish problem, didn't they? That was yeah. how, um, oh, what was this guy? The guy who was the head of the alliance, he used to do that radio show, William Luther Pierce. He used to do that radio show and name it the Jewish problem. Am I right about that? Yes. Yeah. And then kind of it was reframed the Jewish question. Um, basically, well, you're pointing, you're gone. Go on, I was just going to say well, I, one analogy that I find useful is that of invasive species. So eucalypti, for example, when they're transported to California or to other places in the world are frequently an invasive species. They outcompete native plant life and they suck up enormous amounts of water and they can present a substantial fire hazard. And so I think invasive species is a natural biological way of understanding uh, group conflicts between you know, human groups. Yeah, I wouldn't want to go as far as to call Jews an invasive species. I did. I mean, I don't think I could get away with that in the United Kingdom anyway. <laughs> so I'm going to pull back on that analogy. But, um, well, basically, the, I, I failed Brundlefly anyway. I've come on here and I've started talking about the Jewish question. So I'm sorry, dude, you cancelled me against this, but I did it straight away. Um, but basically, what I want to say is that I understand it from a competition perspective and this tempers it really it puts a nuanced perspective on it and somebody like David and yourself and that help to humanize something which otherwise seems like a dark and dastardly plot against white people <laughs> as framed by the alt-right um, but when you look at it it can just be seen as competition and the onus really is upon us to perform better. Yeah, when when another group perhaps yeah. excels you failings. in some way, you know, do, do you want to focus on blaming the other group or do you want your group to lift its game? Yeah, exactly. And the alt-right, unfortunately, uh, had uh, too much emphasis upon pointing the finger and saying, even though it was reframed as the question, um... But I remember William Pierce used to, you know, I did, I did, I admit it, listen to a few of those and they've been passed around 
and he used to go and rail about the Jewish problem and all the bad things. And um, but anything can be made out to be. You can make out one side of something to look so bad and so dastardly um, and organized. And I'll get a lot of pushback for the from for explicitly cucking on this stuff. By the way, here from. The, the you know the wignut side of the aisle uh, but uh i don't care this this is actually uh, the nuanced take that i've acquired from it and um i don't think there's enough about redressing uh, our own um lack of um lack of competitive abilities here there there's there's groups who are out competing us as white, straight, Christian men, and uh, we're not doing a good enough job. And um, if we just competed, we, we'd be back in the race, really. So uh, most people who've touched on the topics that you've touched on, on your live streams have blown up their lives. How have you been able to navigate without blowing up your life? Um so uh so i mentioned earlier uh on the stream where i was mulling over coming on your channel that um and i think i touched on it earlier that i'd seen what's happened to uh the people uh in the old right that came came on say your show or on periphery shows how uh, it led to the destruction of lives and things like this this and um, essentially I made the decision I wasn't, I wasn't going to face docs, uh, but I've done everything other than that, basically. Um, or were you asking about, uh, were you asking about how I've dealt with the ideas? I think the ideas came from just, uh, taking a nuanced path, uh, but rather than being just like, um, accelerated down an alt-right pipeline, I somehow end up, uh, in getting, um, also two sides of the same coin from something like your show. And so I didn't end up like um, radicalized into any of the other 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 camps. I just found them annoying, um, just like you know, thick-headed and um, really threatening. A lot of a lot of them, like the Whig Natural side of it. So, um, w would you go to a march, you know, for white rights? No. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't go to any protest on the street at all because I think, you know, I'd be self-serving in that thing. I don't think anything, anything good comes of that kind of thing. Um, and I think all you're doing is putting a target on your head doing that kind of thing. So maybe that's just self-serving, but, um, in every single instance, uh, some of them have been absolute disasters. Um, and I think it could have been known in hindsight, uh, sorry, in foresight that these things were set up to be disasters. Um, some people saw in advance that like Charlottesville had the potential to become a disaster, didn't they? Yes. Yeah. And, and then it's kind of stunning that so many people, including people with, with PhDs and, and very you know, high status jobs who did not see that. And they showed up to Charlottesville and they ruined their lives. Yeah. Now, in hindsight, in hindsight, 
nobody could have well maybe i'm just contradicting myself here i don't know i was going to say nobody could have in hindsight known that a guy was going to uh, mow down a bunch of people um whether it was accidental or I tend to think uh, he was a like a deeply autistic guy who got lost on the way out, panicked, hit the accelerator, there were people hitting the back of the car. Don't think it was, but however, however it turned out, it history will remember it as uh, a terrorist attack, however it went down. So I don't think, I don't know if in foresight you could have expected that to happen, but God, uh, so certainly after that, um, you have to be aware of that something like that could happen. And then the whole thing would be tarred with that. And you would, uh, like, history would then be remembering that you were part of something like that. Hmm. So there's an enormous uh, Wignat audience out there that that uh, their needs are not getting met. That's why you can get an enormous audience, uh, you know, Kenneth Brown. Uh, Deep Left Jokal, you know, knows this and you've experienced this and I've experienced this when you touch on Wignat topics. There's an enormous audience of Wignats who are not getting their needs met online and they will just flock to anything you produce. On the other hand, this tends to be a frequently low IQ, antisocial audience that is very dangerous to appeal to. So on the one hand, one can do, you know, non-Wignat streams with relatively low viewership numbers or you can do streams that are very dangerous to your well-being, but appeal to an enormous number of wignats. So do you, do you agree with this assessment? Yes, I do. I think the wignat crowd, I'll get pushback for, be it for just um, speaking in what I, I guess must come across and probably is intended to be condescending here. I think we are both speaking condescendingly about what we term wignats and i think that's fair to say because that's what we're intending to do and i'll get pushback for it because some of these people see me as their own um i've never really existed in that camp uh but the majority of them luke hate hate me too anyway uh, but some of them feel like i should be more like them and um you know they <laughs> they'll say things to me you know uh, to that effect um but not much good does come of them. And it's an ever-accelerating group. It's an ever-purity-spiling group. And you can really never satisfy um, their, their sensibilities and their wants unless uh, you are always taking the most hardcore, radical position um, on all of these topics, um, which I just don't agree with anyway. Yeah, and uh, have you experienced or struggled with the the dangerous powers of the e personality? I don't think I have. Uh, no, I don't think I have. <laughs> Could that be a sign that I have? I don't know. What does that mean? Uh, yeah. Well, let me spell out what it means. So when people go online and start sharing their views about life and, and the world mm -hmm. and race relations, they tend to very quickly develop an overestimate of their own abilities, their own importance, 
they tend to speak and act spontaneously rather than with the caution that one would exhibit in real life and they tend to share dark things that they normally wouldn't share in face-to-face -face interactions. So those are the principal perils of the e-personality. I know that I've frequently sure. succumbed to them, but how about you? So, um, my, my immediate sense here is no. My immediate sense here is that I'm always um, kind of holding myself back whenever I go and I start talking on the internet. So maybe I, maybe I have a false sense of myself. Um, but I'm always very careful because I live in the United Kingdom. Um, and essentially, um, I'm not the smartest guy in the world. I always say this, I'm not super intellectual, but I'm smart enough. I, I've got street sense enough to know what I can and cannot get away with in terms of the law, unlike some idiots over here who seem to be totally, uh, blissfully, or not blissfully even, un unaware of this fact that in the United Kingdom you can't say certain things and also that you can't hide from your government or the police force, uh, just like by me being pseudo-anonymous. Uh, if they want over here, they can very easily contact the internet companies and find out who you are they will come and put your door through at 4 a.m. And you will get arrested and things like that for actual um, breaches of hate, hate speech regulations, which we have over here. So this has been like a tempering factor to the things that I say. Now, it's also restrictive. I also don't know how to phrase certain things and go about talking about certain topics. So it, it's difficult. Um, not that I have any radicalized views. I might have you. Like I say, I tend to have a, a nuanced opinion about these things. Basically, as I said before about group, um, uh, group interests acting out in their own interest. I don't know if I answered the question. Yeah, yeah. So... Here's, here's something that I suffer from. I'm just curious if, if you struggle with the, the same thing. I kind of walk around in a stunned amazement that the world hasn't yet discovered how amazing I am. I walk around kind of stunned that I'm not at least a United States senator. You know, I'm stunned that I don't have a nationally syndicated radio or, or TV show where I could be, you know, bestowing my rules for life. Seriously? Seriously. Seriously. I, I mean, I wish it wasn't true. You know, I have such a... I'm just telling you about a feeling. Like when I rationally think about it, you know, obviously. The thing is, though, Luke, you might yeah. not be far wrong because, I mean, I've come on here and, you know, I've, um, to your face, you've just got somebody on your show right now, to your face, who said, like, you, you know, you could have uh, done much better. So maybe just because saying things like that about yourself is generally considered to, like, be uh, somebody whose ego is way out of line for their own stature. Maybe, maybe in your case, it actually is a, you know, in some, in to some people, uh, they are actually thinking correctly. So maybe in that case, it is, it is a crying shame that you don't have a, a national syndicated radio show. And that's not thinking too much of yourself. But what about you? Do you walk around in stunned amazement that the world hasn't discovered yet what a genius you are? Uh, no, not particularly. I, 
In terms, are you asking just about live streaming here? Uh, um, just oh. in general. I mean, I, I often think, oh man, what I've got to say is so funny or so piercing. You know, there, there should be like a massive audience for, for this. Uh, but what about you? Probably the complete opposite, actually. I mean, I I put myself down a lot. I'm self-denigrating uh, to a point that people, I think, noti- have noticed it. They have noticed it because they say it to me. Why, why, why are you putting yourself down on it? But I, I'm acutely aware of my own limits um, in that I'm not an intellectual guy. So frequently in situations, I know that I am outcompeted intellectually by others um and i'm frequently like worried that it'll it'll stray into areas where uh, i'll just look like a complete fool um and i don't know if this is partly adhd or partly just being stupid i I call it just being stupid but or partly like a um entire history of engaging in combat sports I'll be honest with you, I don't know if it's ADHD or or taking part in combat sports that um, gives me this. But anyway, the top and bottom of it is that I walk around with kind of um, an inferiority complex rather than a superiority complex. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I remember I was 40 years old and I was at a, a talk on a Friday night on a Shabbat from this woman who was a psychologist and something of a leader in Orthodox Judaism. And she gave a talk on marriage. And then after a talk, we were able to ask questions. And I raised my hand. I said, if you you met someone who was 40 and a bachelor in Orthodox Jewish life, what would be your immediate instinctive reactions? And she said, I would expect that the person had uh, a, a fear of success and a fear of failure. So a fear of of getting married, completing the deal, and also a disabling fear of not getting married. And either way, the fears were disabling the person's life. So are your fears disabling your life? Yeah, yeah, they do, I guess. I guess guess that's true. Um, Like in many ways, if I, if I, if I, hadn't developed some strategies, whether they're good or bad. Like um, I was able to put together my rules recently uh, and do uh, a video on each one of them. These are my strategies that I've cobbled together uh, to get through essentially being uh, an ADHD person, uh, as I I put it, Uh, and and to go about in the world like with this sense of myself um, as being like intellectually inferior. Um, if I hadn't cobbled together various strategies or like this, uh, they would be disabling. And so, like for instance, I would not have come on your show probably, um, say a year a year ago, um, because uh, like the 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 expectation, the thought of how it would have gone would have prevented me from doing it but uh i've one of the strategies i have is sometimes you just like have to jump in at the deep end and really should have done it before now i shouldn't have put it off last week i should have just done it uh but i did it this week anyway uh but 
this is like an example of um, how it could be disabling because a, a while ago I just wouldn't have done it at all. How does the world of counseling and psychotherapy go over among your friends? Um, I've never really talked, talked about it to anybody. Um, if you told your friends that you're in counseling, that you know you you thought you had this or they'd that, laugh. Psych- they'd laugh. They'd laugh. If you told your mum you're in counseling because you thought you had a fear of success, she'd be she'd horrified. Be yeah, she probably would. She'd think that I I was close to uh, being put in a nut house or something. There really is no culture of psychotherapy over here like uh, there is in the extent that there is in America. And what if you're about to compete in some kind of uh, you know fighting contest or mixed martial arts contest and you shared with your opponent you know some of the insights that you just gained from your counselor? <laughs> oh boy, yeah, they, well, yeah, I wouldn't do that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, one of the one of the problems is at some point uh, this internet presence and my my actual. Uh, I've said I compete in sports in the contact sport. At some point, this world and that world are gonna are gonna get combined, and I know it. Um, <laughs> and I kind of just am. Um, I've been hoping that I can um, basically get over my sporting days before um, I end up getting doxxed and identified as that guy. <laughs> so, um, so I, I take it that you've never had your potential ADHD examined by a psychiatric professional um as i was diagnosed as a kid um and so i had some of that but it it was through school um and so never in adult life um i could be on i could be on medication right now but um i can't i don't can't take anything like that because all those medications are essentially like amphetamine based um, and you can't take uh, certainly amphetamines or any of those substances uh, and uh, do competitive sports. So why do you think you might be ADHD? Oh, well, I was clinically diagnosed as a kid, about 10 years old, through school. Uh, but um, a lot of people say, look, ADHD doesn't even exist. So there's there's that claim to get over over first, but ADHD just means it as a cluster of symptoms, um, and so I exhibit these symptoms. Like I could, I I used to be extremely, um, I used to display the symptoms extremely uh, heavily of fidgeting as a child. I can, I mean, you know, they used to make me sit on my hands, uh, restless leg syndrome, and uh, not being able to sit still but as an adult as well it's just like having the cluster of symptoms of uh, not uh, being unable to um, conceptualize or whatever the word is um, to perceive the passage of time correctly that's the main one uh, that you can't you just the passage of time just really um, you just can't get to grips with it um forgetting things losing things or this cluster of symptoms is what is known today as ADHD and I exhibit them 
So uh, Colin Liddell in the chat says that ADHD is a feminist plot. Do you agree with that? <laughs> uh, no, I just think it's the cluster of symptoms, whether we want to call it ADHD or whether we just want to call it, um, you know, being whatever it is. I, I'm open to it just being a case of being uh, low IQ uh, idiocy. Maybe years years ago it just used to be called idiocy, didn't it? Or uh, being a moron or something like that. But today, this group of symptoms is called ADHD. Uh, but the, the thing is, they've found out how to treat it pretty effectively with stimulants. Stimulants seem to have um, a, a good impact um, on the ordering of thoughts. Um, it allows ADHD people to not be so uh, scatterbrained. So, so how did it affect the quality of your life going on ADHD medication and then going off ADHD medication? Uh, so I was a child um, and I and I only took some medication for a very short amount of time. So effectively, I've been an unmedicated uh, ADHD patient for all the rest and most of my life, uh, certainly entirely as an adult. I'm off my meds, Luke. <laughs> <laughs> and um, what what would happen, have to happen for you to think that you had a problem that was beyond your control and you needed to go back on your meds? Uh, I would, I would never, um, actually. So, um, I mean, I mean, unless I be, unless I became, you know, unable to function in, in the world, which, uh, I can't foresee happening. Um, I'm able to function as a person in the world. Uh, I'm not in danger of, um, like forgetting to change my underpants or or being unable to drive a car or anything like that. It's not that bad. Um, so I would never do it because uh, I've also imbued this um, personality uh, of being what you know, I, I call straight edge, you know, being of living drug-free and alcohol-free, uh, which is something you can identify with, can't you? Yes. So, what so about, the, go ahead. the reason you the reason you won't have, uh, unless I'm mistaken, like a glass of wine and a Shabbat dinner or something, is because you you have this. You consider yourself teetotal, don't you? Yeah, yeah, and also I'm aware that I have a lot of self-destructive, compulsive, uh, perhaps addictive tendencies, and so there are certain things that I shy away from in case I enjoy them too much. Sure, sure. Have you ever drunk? Yeah, I'll, I'll have a mouthful of wine at a Kiddush. It's a Jewish religious ceremony, but I never, I never yeah. drink for pleasure. Okay, yeah. So I don't take drugs. Yeah, or never, never taken drugs. Never. How about, uh, how about drugs? Have you played around with drugs? No, no, not at all. Mainly because I do competitive sports, um, and uh, in, in and out of competition, you are drug tested. Um, and particularly uh, around the, the the time of competition, uh, it's uh, such a, a huge list of medications that you can't take. So I wanted to do a video about this, that um, if people want to keep their kids off drugs, particularly their boys, which I think is one of the most important things that 
they can do for their boys, number one, is to stop them from being bullied and get so therefore get them into a contact sport or something like that so that they can learn to defend themselves. But two, to keep them off drugs, getting them into a competitive sport or a team sport where there's some kind of regular drug testing circuit. Uh, some people find this shocking or whatever, but it's a part of competitive sports that keeps your kids off of drugs. It certainly did for me. Now, it, it m- meant that I lost a lot of my friend groups. Um, like it just wouldn't even be around somebody who was ever smoking weed or something like that. I, ter- terrified that, you know, I could like inhale it and then it end up showing on a drug test. Um, and so, yeah, I, I kind of uh, departed from a lot of my friends. Um, but that was probably for a good thing. That probably did me no harm. And uh, people who won't participate in, in circle jerks also depart from a lot of their friends. Do you have a position on circle jerks? I get it. I get it. Yes, I'm anti. I'm anti circle jerking. So I'm not. Uh, I'm not. I'm not into that. Did that alienate you from your classmates? Um, there was a gay kid in my in my class actually. Uh, but I didn't, uh, um, you know, I, I I don't think that, this is another topic I brought up, I don't think Zoomers are as gay as what people make out. I think the world looks a lot, uh, I think people see it through a lens that's not necessarily true, uh, because certainly like the, there was like one gay kid in my class at school, and he was bullied for it. Uh, and everybody else kind of had the opinion, um, which seems to be like the traditional approach. I hadn't seen it move on that much um, as to what, you know, what everybody's opinion seems to be of it today, that like everybody in a class is gay and circle jerking each other and whatever, and there's trannies everywhere. And I just haven't seen it, but maybe that's like a UK perspective. What about the people that you compete with? Uh, is there a high percentage of, of gays? No, not at all. Um, so, yeah, I would say one at the most. Would you describe the the competitive environment around you as homophobic? Uh, only implicitly. Um, the problem, however, is that here's the problem is that sports are being cut and competitive sports are being overtaken by women. Okay. So, um, and I, I, I don't mean, um, obviously like obviously male and female sports are segregated. I mean, all, all the, all the periphery of it, the organizing, the, uh, running of like councils and, uh, associations of sports and things and certainly the uh, like um, team gb um which is a part of uh, like the great, great british sporting for uh, the olympics and things like that and the and like the um anti-doping scene and all these councils and associations are becoming heavily feminized and run by women and 
<laughs> and black people. <laughs> I don't know why, but the two. So they're becoming very cucked, and therefore there is this the opening um, of I can see I can see in in professional sports in organised sports that they are fully embracing like um, the the gay pride thing at the moment. You fight a, a woman. Say that trans, again. Like say, would, say that again. Would you fight a woman like when you do your fighting competitions would you be comfortable you know punching or wrestling or doing mixed martial arts with a woman absolutely not um i mean a, a woman would be in serious physical danger fighting any man um certainly any man in their weight class so all contact sports are done at weight classes and these uh like i i would be in serious danger fighting somebody um, who is a few weight classes above me, and just for compet, just for competitive purposes, you would never fight somebody that's not even in your same weight class. Uh, that you know, that's just one weight class above you. Um, so uh, certainly in contact sports, anyway, you know, men and women would never be able to compete for that reason because they would never be able to get into the same weight class. So would have to undermine uh, the entire fabric of how contact sports are done for men and women to be able to compete because they just would never actually weigh the same and be able to fit into those classes what, what about a trans woman so a guy who is uh, who is biologically male but identified as a woman would you feel comfortable engaging in contact sports with the he oh, sure absolutely that's very tolerant and open-minded of you. Absolutely. Um, yeah. It's got to treat people equally, haven't you, Luke? Yeah. <laughs> so Fully accepting. Wonderful. Beautiful. So what, what role does uh, pornography play among your peers to the extent that people confide in you? Uh, pornography is prolific. Um, I think that, that the stigma of watching it has pretty much been taken away in the modern world and so i uh, you know i hate to admit it but there is probably if i if i framed it like this there is much more of the like uh, way that somebody like andy worski would would treat it in society and in my among my peer group than there would be uh, somebody who who would frown upon it um, who would uh, take the anti-pornographer stance. It's just like uh, something that... Oh, and how old, the... how old were you when you were first exposed to hardcore pornography? Wow, this is, so this is getting personal now, Luke. Um, okay, so... Um, I can't, I can't, I mean, I can't remember... For, 14, probably. And what kind of effect do you think that genre has had on your life? Not a lot, actually. Um, so I tend to underplay the significance of it. Um, I don't think that it is necessarily the, you know, like the worst evil in the world. 
Um, and I'm, you know, I, I, I just take it. I just accept the fact that the fact that people want to look at it so much, um, you know, means that obviously that, you know, this, <laughs> this is a terrible question because I'm terribly difficult at frame, framing an answer to it. I'm really struggling here, but basically lots of people want, still want to look at it, even though they know it's bad. Uh, nobody really thinks, you know, oh, the virtues of pornography is great, isn't it? I'll tell everybody I'm going home to watch a hardcore porn film today. But people still do it, don't they? Their, their preferences, their revealed preferences show that they're still up for it. What do you think of the no fap movement? Uh, so, uh, I don't know. Um... I think it is certainly useful to tell kids that they really, you know, uh, it, I think it's useful because it gets people to think about the topic and to at least put the idea into somebody's mind that, um, like watching pornography and excessively masturbating, these kinds of things uh, are not healthy for you, which, um, like, in it, a lot, like I say, that a lot of people just don't even seem to think that it might be unhealthy for them. It is so ubiquitous these days, so easy to access, and um, its stigma has been removed so much that people seem to think it's normative behaviour. So, putting that forward like that, maybe you shouldn't be wanking every day, dude, isn't a bad idea. Yeah, what do you think is like excessive masturbation as opposed to a healthy level of wanking? Next question. Okay. Um, Andrew Tate. <laughs> Any thoughts on Andrew Tate? Um, I don't. Um, I don't. I'm not into the guy at all. I don't think he is uh, much of a role model for kids. Uh, a lot of kids seem to know. Uh, who Andrew Tate is more than their local politicians or things like that. So he, his influence is much bigger than he deserves, really. But it seems like a bit of a dickhead to me. Um, and he was never much for kickboxer, really. To be fair, uh, he, I think his first his professional record started on two defeats. So um, it's certainly blown that up beyond what. Um, it, it, he deserves in terms of reputation. What about you? What uh, do you think yeah, I, I just find him so repulsive that uh, I... It's his influence among young people that's surprising. Yeah. Well, it's surprising in the sense that, you know, Alex Jones is influential among some people. Like, you know, he, I'm sure he's, they're, they're both influential among a subset of morons. Yeah, I think there was a survey done, though, uh, just of uh, like high school, high school kids, high school boys, and something like seventy percent knew of them, knew who Andrew Tate was, but none of them could name the prime minister or something like that, or, or far less could name the prime minister, but they they knew who Andrew Tate was. And how much attention have you paid to millennial woes? Um, so millennial woes, um, some. Certainly some, because his millennial is such a big fixture on the alt-right, isn't it? Yeah. So, 
he's he's somebody else who's walked into like a a, a goose that lays a golden egg there and he his own uh, way of being is very disabling because he doesn't seem to realize like what a golden goose that thing is uh, and he's and he, he can't seem to use it as a springboard to better things that's the only thing he can do uh, he's got it and he and the go golden goose lays the golden eggs 30 times in december and then that's it for another year but it is what it is it's a fixture on the alt right and every year everybody gets together set i watch those most of them i watched less of them this time around but for the previous i think it's been getting worse basically progressively worse uh because there's really less and less to say or it's all been said far too much or there's a great proliferation of grifters versus authentic uh, amateur people who just have interesting things to say so now as time goes on we have more and more grifters on the scene or more and more people who are attempting to create a monetized audience and that just isn't as interesting as people who for me personally who are amateur and are just on the internet because they really have something that they want to say to the world and you know they're not thinking about whether somebody's going to be giving them ten dollars at the end of it so uh this is my uh really only interest in millennial woes um i used to find all his old content where he used to sit there in a dressing gown and smoke i used to think that was disgusting and i never watched any of it are you are you okay with like watching fat people on a live stream you say fat people yeah sure um i'm anti i'm anti-fat though i've got to you know i've got to be honest but um i mean it doesn't yeah i think people shouldn't be fat but i'm not like I'm not like grossed out at it i'd like to help them And to what extent do you think that the people who do what we do, you know, produce a lot of live streams, uh, to what extent do you think that comes from a healthy place versus coming from a broken, unhealthy place? Oh, I think it certainly comes from the broken side of the aisle. I think you have to have gone through hardship or be in some kind of, I think you have to have uh, gone through adversity to come to these ideas and this uh, this weird niche end of the political aisle. Um, I think you'd agree with that, wouldn't you? Yeah, that, marginalized you... movements attract yes. marginalized people. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. So we are a movement of broken people. That's kind of an Achilles heel, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, you can't you can't build anything good off uh, you know a movement of broken people. What you can do is destroy. Yeah, we're a bunch of rejects, aren't we? It's but bad. what about like the just the live streaming, producing mm. and and consuming element? You know, to to what extent does does live streaming forget political ideology of whatever political stripe? come from a broken versus a healthy place 
Um, so I'm thinking particularly of the political type probably comes from the broken sense. I mean, there's many functional people who do live streaming. There's many functional people who've turned their hands to video media. Um, in many ways, you know, I asked the question of myself, should I have, should I have just started like a fitness channel? And I, I'm not sure that doing a fitness channel would mean that you're, that would come to a broken place. Um, I think it sends those attracted to actually start, start whatever, talking about dissident politics. Um, probably because of those aspects of myself rather than if I'd have been, um, you know, just like a, I know, fully positive person, then I could have done some positive media and that. What do you think? Well, I think if it either is neutral or enhances your life, it comes mm -hmm. from a healthy place. If it destroys the quality of your real life and distances you from the people that you were formerly close to, then it's destructive. Sure. I'd agree with that. I'd agree with that. I mean, well, if I have to give some pushback, it's that we don't live in a neutral, in a, in a fair play playing field. Uh, we're not on a fair playing field. Some, if, if like free speech was honored um, and all ideas were acceptable. Like, you know, even as I'm about to say that and try to make this case that like, I know the dissident right wants me to make and push back. I just realized how, what like an idealistic, stupid world that would be anyway. There's no such thing as where, a system where there's free speech allowed. So I don't even know what point I was trying to make there, Luke. I've railed myself in. Uh, what, what role do books play in your life? Are you much of a book reader? No, not really. Unfortunately, Luke, I, I, I think, are we approaching the, uh, <laughs> the big question? <laughs> I can uh, I can show you what I've uh, the interesting thing I've been reading lately if you want. Sure. Uh, here it is. Here's... Let's have a look here. Oh, take a look. Quranism, <laughs> a new moral. I didn't know Claire Cole wrote a book. Yeah, so it's very thin, but she's recently she's self-published a book finally. Um. Did it get a review it, in the Times? It's five pounds on Amazon. Um, but so, um, I don't know. I don't know, by the way, um, if it's going to get any reviews. He's definitely wanting me to review it. Colin Liddell says I have to do a review for his website, but it's a drag. Basically, it's a drag, even though it's very thin. Have you, have you ever been a religious man? I'm not religious, Luke. To be honest, I feel, I feel pretty detached from it. I, I think that religions are tribes. And so I am nominally a Christian. I am, but, uh, I tend to think it's hocus pocus in terms of religion. I'll just be on, you know, just being upfront about that. I wish I was a believer, but I know. There's a there's a uh, podcast called Embrace the Void, which is conducted by a, a left wing 
uh, academic whose name I'm blanking on, but at the end of every show, he does this enlightenment round where he asks people, you know, a series of questions. Is this, are these, the following things real? So do you think that, do you believe that God is real? Oh, it seems like it's uh, like too much of a sim- silly question because uh, it de- demands what is God. Like if the Buddhists would say that like the universe is God. So I mean, what are we talking about? A personal God or? Uh, yeah. So you live in a nominally Christian country. So to the extent that people are religious, traditionally in Great Britain, they've been Christian. So uh, a God of the Christian conception is that. Is that a real thing? I tend, I, I tend to think that the Bible is, uh, is man's attempt to put these ideas, uh, into words that uh, make sense. But um, I tend to think that you know these are man's interpretations of what seems like a uh, massive cosmic question of where did we come from uh, and still really no nobody has a good answer to but an anthropo- anthropo- anthropomorphized um, guy giving commandments or shooting out lightning bolts just seems utterly absurd to me okay so i'd put you if i had to put you into a dichotomy i'd put you down as a, as a no okay what Go about ahead, yeah. justice? Do you think justice is something that's real that we should be striving towards, or is it just entirely subjective? Um, I think justice is. Um... Whoa, these are difficult questions. I don't know the answer to that. Um, I don't know how to answer it. Um, I think it's probably the probably subjective uh free will is free will real um yes demons are demons real no uh, afterlife is the afterlife real no truth is truth real or is it entirely subjective? Truth is real. Beauty is beauty real? Yes. And hope is is hope real or is it just a fantasy? Well I mean for the last three here I could have said you're asking if like um abstract concepts are real, which um seems to undermine the the premise but yes hope is real uh, would you describe yourself as having a strong medium or, or weak in-group identity um i would consider myself to have uh, let's go down the middle medium and as your in-group identity is waxed or waned, do you notice that it's accompanied by changing perspectives and feelings about out-groups? Uh, yes. Right. The, the stronger one's in-group identity, right? It's almost always inevitably accompanied by increasingly negative 
feelings about our groups? Um, I'd say the two is the two are definitely associated, but certainly the noticing of differences, uh, whether whether that's a negative feeling or not. Yeah, you know, you're right. You're right. I'm trying to cook in on, on it. Yeah, sure, you're right. And do you think that we can morally educate people or if we wanted to, like, improve the moral fiber of our society, how would we go about it, do you think? Um, ask me that question again, please. Sorry. How, how could we... How could we improve the, the moral fiber of society? How could we improve the moral character of individuals? I think that's exceptionally difficult unless people, unless kids are brought up correctly. And I think kids need to be brought up. Uh, I think the education system uh, is pretty bad. And... Um, I think it's all about upbringing, Luke. Um, so I have a great answer for you. Go uh, upbringing, do you mean parenting? Um, parenting, but also directing kids into what they would uh, be naturally um, inclined to excel in. Um, but also, I, I just think like uh, schooling should be like 90% physical activity or something like that for until... Kids are like 13, 14, and then like some classes in maths and English or something uh, alongside, um, and then people can, should specialise after that. A bit like the Olympic uh, Olympians used to do, uh, you know, get rather than this kind of mess that we've got into now. So the, the system we have now seems to be much more amenable to females. Like they seem to be much more susceptible to coloring within the lines, following the rules, doing what the, the teacher wants, boys sure. tend to be much more rambunctious. Is that fair? Sure. Um, boys need physical activity, in my opinion. I mean, we have this obesity crisis. We have this crisis of um, incels um, and all this, pro all this problem... These these things seem to be linked. That we are just fundamentally fit. We're, we're just trying to um, socialize kids ready for the workplace, and it's not really working out super well. Yeah, it works out in some ways, and I know it's a difficult task, and I know that uh, public education is mainly just like daycare, so parents can work and stuff like that. And the state has to have, you know, has has to do it somehow, but. I know, I just think if we, um, <laughs> in my ideal world, we'd um, like just you know, do uh, competitive sports and like um, athletics for boys and girls up to a certain age and um, yeah, and drug test them and keep them thin and that'll be best. Okay, great, uh, Stephen. It's great to talk to you. Any, any final thoughts? questions comments no luke thank you for having me on uh should probably done it sooner um and yeah that's it i uh, hope i wasn't too boring for no, your it was great. audience thanks mate awesome all right luke um 
hopefully speak to you again in the future. Okay, cheers, mate. Cheers. All okay. right, adios, everybody. Okay, there's a uh, question in the, in the chat. What do I call mass confusion? Well, I think I think individuals usually need to believe in a lot of things that are not empirically valid. For example, it's probably adaptive for most of us to think of ourselves most of the time as the center of the universe. So I think both individuals and societies need a certain level of delusion, but there's a level of delusion that's adaptive, and then there's a level of delusion that's maladaptive. So I wouldn't say that, you know, all delusions are maladaptive. I'd say it is complex. It wasn't a question. It was a joke. Okay. I took it uh, seriously. That's the, that's the thing. When you're doing a live stream, so much of my cognitive processing power is occupied by say, monitoring audio levels, <laughs> audio quality above and beyond everything else, then thinking about what I want to say next, questions I want to ask, how you know things are going on with a guest, what the audience is saying. And there are so many things competing for my cognitive power that there's not a lot of room left for you know understanding when people are being ironic. It's like when I start a stream, I got like I feel like I got this wide open mind. I feel like there's this you know vast sunny wheat field in front of me that uh, soon there will be plenty. I will press start stream and there will be plenty. Then as soon as I press start stream, I start monitoring audio levels, audio quality. You know, is the stream transmitting? What's the audience uh, saying in the chat? You know, a guest lined up. And then that, that plenty just shrinks down, 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 down and gets smaller and smaller. And I get tighter and tighter and uh, tighter. So let me, let me get back to the titular topic of uh, today's stream. You know, what the hell is going on with uh, Trump's indictment? This is Mickey Cow speaking with Robert Wright Friday night. Oh, these are America's bravest national secrets. Yeah, but, you know, none of them leaked out. And, you know, you know he wasn't. Well, we don't know that they weren't shared okay. with anybody. And, and he right. kind and of did apparently kind of show one to the biographer of uh, what's his name? Well, we don't the, know. He uh, waved, he waved Wait, of course, the big question is, why does Mark Meadows have a biographer? Who's publishing this book? That is a big question. Yes. Okay. Anyway, go, go uh, ahead. Now, maybe now they are. Maybe he'll cancel it and, and get the publicity. Um, the, uh, so um, he waved around a piece of paper. I don't think anybody's seen the piece of paper. It's not even clear that the piece of paper wasn't just a piece of paper with some writing on it that Trump said was a war plan for something, you know, that no for invading, for, for bombing Iran. Right. Um, uh, Peggy Nooner wrote a good column making the best case for uh, for worrying about this, that, you know, Mar-a-Lago was, was not at all secure, and people wandered in and out as far as I could see. Uh, and if you were really a, a semi-competent spy, you could have, you know, maybe uh, come up with our war plan for attacking uh, Iran. So uh, it's still, we don't know that it happened. There, 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 there are a bunch of cases, precedents for violating uh, secrecy laws. One of them is uh, General Petraeus, who had a black book where he kept a lot of secrets, clearly national defense information, code names for spies who would be killed. The code name got out, uh, and he lied about it. So, you know, he told people he didn't have it. And uh, well, this was so after his affair with his biographer was. So this is this is before the affair. Revealed. And then he, 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 when he left the CIA, he said he didn't take any information with oh. him. He still had these books, and he, he. So that's the equivalent of Trump obstructing justice, lying about it, and. He also actually did share them with his mistress, who was this uh, woman who was writing a book. Or All or something. He was trying to, yeah. Who he was, trying called, to was a book called All In? I don't know. Everything is called All In. Yeah. Everything is called I mean, They should do, they should have her on the podcast. Anyway, um, anyway so he, he, it pretty much parallels Trump, except he wasn't president and it's worse because he actually gave it to somebody. Mm -hmm. uh, and he settled for a misdemeanor. Okay. He settled the case. They, he pled mm -hmm. guilty to a misdemeanor. That's, that's what he got. Uh, similarly, John Deutsch, who was a high defense department official during Clinton, and, and I think he was head of the CIA also, uh, uh, had had uh, classified a bunch of classical 
classified material on his home computer, unsecured. Mm -hmm. uh, totally putting uh, it at risk, uh, uh, probably similar to Mar-a-Lago. And um, he, uh, he was about to plead to a misdemeanor uh, when Clinton pardoned him, okay? Mm -hmm. So that just shows that yes, these things have to be illegal. It, it, it's definitely a threat when you, uh, when you, you know, keep top secrets in, in insecure places, but it's not that big a deal. We pardon people, we ought to plead to a misdemeanor. It's not like yeah. a big felony production all the time. So my line, my line is now, you know, Trump should just settle this for a misdemeanor plea. And, uh, well, you, you know what almost seems like a bigger deal uh, is the links he went to to mislead the government. Once he once it was clear the government wants him back, the links he went to to deceive the government and hang on to them. And in, Andy McCarthy said something interesting, you know, of National Review, and he's of course a former prosecutor. He said, you know, really the politically optimal thing to do for the prosecutor to do in this case, and the fact that he didn't do it is evidence that this isn't fundamentally a political prosecution. He said the political optimal, politically optimal thing would be just stick with the obstruction of justice thing, or at a minimum, make that the front and center of the indictment. Either, either just confine it to that part or make it central, because the reason that would be politically better is because nobody can make a comparison with, with that and what Biden did, right? Have possession of the documents is a case where they can compare it to what Biden did. But nobody can say Biden obstructed justice the way Trump did, the flagrant way Trump did. Uh, and that, I would think, separates this case from maybe all the ones you just mentioned, the obstruction of justice part. Well, no, because the case lied on this one. Well, you, but that you, wasn't you in the course that that of a government a... investigation. That wasn't in the course of a, is that obstruction of justice? I don't know. If it's in anticipation of an investigation yeah. that hasn't happened yet, I don't know. Well, it wasn't um, even, uh, yeah, I mean, anticipation the, would be to put it strongly. It's just a form you fill out. I mean, yeah. the, I guess that's right. The, the problem I have with that is that the public sees their fights over subpoenaed information all the time between, you know, Congress, which is, a, you know, in the Constitution and the White House. And, and there, people are always fighting, Cong you know, not giving Congress what it wants, and they negotiate it out. Uh, in this case, you know, denying something to the National Archives is not that a big a deal. Denying something to a grand jury is a bigger deal. But I just, I, I think you got to make the argument that, that Peggy Noonan makes that these were important documents and they really put national security mm -hmm. at risk. And I don't know what I think about that, but well, uh, I think it's, I think it's a heavy misdemeanor or a life felony. Um, well, as you know, let me let me say, I don't think they should have indicted him. Uh, one of our commenters, J A R I, who claims to be a European and judging by the name is one, says. Okay, this I don't get as a European. Why is Bob saying this Trump indictment is banana republic? If someone has committed a crime or felony, why wouldn't they be charged for it? This is if Bob is attributing strategy to the Justice Department. Uh, I don't know about the rest. Of it. The, 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 the problem is the appearance of strategy. The problem is that this looks like it could be a political prosecution, and that's just, it's unhealthy for the country. So I think there should be a generally high bar uh, from prosecuting people who are like on the verge of running for president or just ran for president. Not to say you should never do it. He's but I think there should be a high bar. Yeah, I know. I think there should be a high bar. And uh, especially in the current political environment where, you know, you've got uh, more than half of the Republican Party uh, convinced that uh, he's being, he and they, in a sense, are being viciously persecuted uh, by nefarious elites who deserve to die, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, it, it totally reinforces his message. I agree with that. Uh, makes it harder to move on. All those points I think are true. What I don't understand is, you know, they're probably not going to get this tried before the election, unless they do it like a month before the election. Okay, so what's the point? I mean, this thing is now going to go dormant for a while. It's going to, you know, there'll be drip drab of stories about the scope of this and, uh, you know, postponing this and not postponing this. And uh, he's not actually going to be tried and convicted and branded a felon or, uh, you know, criminal before the election. So what's the point? It's just another bit of bad publicity. If all you care about is not letting him win the election, uh, it, 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 it's a 